Hebrews chapter 6, we're in, chap- in verses 13 through 20. The name of this uh, message is No Greater Hope. And that's really what I wanted to do today was take the time to go through these last verses of Hebrews 6 and talk to you about hope, the hope that we have in Christ. I don't know if this is happening to you, but it's happening to me. People are asking more and more about the direction of our nation and what will happen if things don't change. That tells me that people are concerned, if not fearful, for our nation and for the future. And we can look at that in a couple of different ways, but personally I think that concern is a good thing. Even if people are fearful, that can be a good thing. If we properly discern the times and we know where to turn to find our hope the only hope that we have, and the only promise that can save us. It doesn't do any good to be concerned or fearful and not know what to do and watch the news and read the news and listen to all the naysayers and become more and more and more agitated and fearful and hopeless. That's not the point. Which is why I wanted to talk to you today about hope. We are the people of God, and we must not forget that. We are a people of promise and a people that have been given a hope. God has promised, swearing by His great name, and He has made our hope sure and steadfast in fulfilling all that He has promised in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives to all of His children the guarantee of that promise by giving us His Spirit. He has poured out. His love into our hearts by His Spirit. His Spirit given to us is the guarantee of His promise made to us and the hope that promise brings. As His children, we have no reason to look to any other but Him. We have no reason to doubt or to fear or to shrink back. But in Christ, we have every reason to trust Him, to patiently endure to have strong consolation and to run to Him and lay hold of the hope that is set before us in Jesus Christ. Christ alone is our hope. He is the anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, which brings us into the very presence of God. So let's read these verses. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence 
behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. And we ask that you would today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, take your word and mold us and shape us, renew our minds and conform us to the very image of the Son of Glory. Father, we ask that you would do this, that we, your people, your church, would be a witness to you in this world to bring peace and comfort to those who are fearful, to those who are hopeless. Father, you have given us hope in Jesus. Help us to share that hope and to show that hope to all who have eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So God has promised, the writer of Hebrews tells us, God promised and he swore by his great name. And he tells us that God cannot lie. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Sometimes we wait on God. And it seems God is late. Or we read in the scripture the promises of God, but we don't see those promises fulfilled. And we become anxious, and we become impatient, and we begin to wonder whether God sees, and whether God hears, and whether God knows. But I promise you this, God sees, God hears, and God knows. And His promise is true, it is sure, He cannot lie. Our hope is sure, it is steadfast in Jesus Christ, and there is no greater hope that we can have as the anchor of our soul. God has promised that He, that His glory will fill the earth. That is a promise that God gives us, that His glory will fill all of the earth. We have no need to doubt that that will happen. God has already proclaimed it by His Word, and He cannot lie. God has declared that His glory will fill all the earth, And God made that promise in the context of declaring also that a whole entire generation would not inherit the promise of God. And they would not inherit it because of their unfaithfulness, because of their doubt, their unbelief, and their disobedience. All of that generation, save two men, Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness, wandering in circles, literally, for 40 years. A journey that should have only taken them days, they wandered around for 40 years until every one of that generation died. But in making that declaration, that judgment to that unfaithful people, God also gave a promise of hope, not only to those who were there in the wilderness, not only to the generation that would go forward and inherit the promised land, but God made that promise to us as well because we are recipients of that promise. We are of those who are heirs of promise by faith in Jesus Christ. And in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, here's the words of God 
told to Moses and to the children of Israel. He says, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I want you to think about that, church. God says, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It is easy for us to look around today to hear and to see everything that is happening and miss the glory of God. And that's exactly what the world wants you to miss. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to miss. The enemy does not want you to see and to know and to experience the glory of God. But God made a promise and God says, As surely as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That is the promise of God. It's in keeping with the promise that God made to Abraham that we just read about in those verses in Hebrews and to all of his descendants, which we are by faith in Jesus Christ. If we doubt God's word and his promise, we doubt it to our own harm. It's not going to change the outcome. It's not going to change what God has declared. It's not going to change the fact that the glory of the Lord will fill all the earth. If we don't believe that, if we doubt that, we are the only ones that will lose. We are the only ones that will suffer hurt because of our doubt and our unbelief. God's glory is filling the earth right now, and it will continue to fill the earth until there is no void left. All the earth and all in it shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Man, even in all of his sin and his sinful rebellion and his sinful disobedience to God, cannot stop the purpose of God. As God's people, we should take supreme hope in this promise, in God's promise that He will fill all of the earth with His glory, because that includes us. And the rage that men have against God is in vain, for God will have His way in all the earth, and God will have His way with all that which is in the earth. His glory is filling the earth, even if we cannot clearly see it. And we live in a world and we live in a time where it is very easy for us to miss the glory of God that is filling the earth. The gospel is not ineffective. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And it may look like the gospel is having no effect, but I promise you the gospel is having an effect throughout this world. We live in a nation that is termed post-Christian. And whatever we want to think that means, or however the experts, whoever they are, wanted to find that, here is the reality. If you look at the history of this nation and the founding of this nation, no one except those that willfully choose to deny this, no one can deny that this nation was founded on biblical principles, on the truth that are found right here in this word. Not a perfect nation, not a perfect system, because there are no perfect people. 
But nevertheless, our laws and what this nation was founded on found its origin in the Scripture. We live in a time now where that is fast being forgotten every day. The Scriptures do not mean anything anymore, even to people who profess faith, even to men and women who stand behind pulpits and and wear the title pastor or bishop. The Scripture is being rewritten. God is being redefined. Even gender is being redefined. Sexuality is being redefined. Marriage is being redefined. God is being redefined. His Word is being redefined. And it's all happening in the name of God, in the name of truth, in the name of love, in the name of Christ. And it is an abomination, and it is sin. And then there are people who are watching this and hearing this, and they don't know what to think, and they don't know what to believe, because too many pulpits in this nation have abandoned the truth, and they will not preach the gospel, because the gospel is too unpopular. It is too hard. It's... These are the terms they use. It's antiquated. It's outdated. We have to evolve beyond what's written in the Bible. We have to evolve spiritually in the way we look at these issues that the world has become so passionate about. And the reason they're passionate about it is because it is a means to redefine God and to destroy ultimately this truth. But here's what the scripture teaches us. Try as man might, he cannot do it. He can't destroy God. He can't destroy the purpose of God. He can't sidetrack the plan of God. He can't mar or diminish or do anything against the glory of God because God and His glory and His light and His truth and His word will prevail because God has declared from His own mouth that He will fill all of the earth with the glory of the Lord. That He will and He has sent a Savior to crush the head of the serpent. And all of our enemies, whoever they are, they are defeated. They are already overcome. The world doesn't know that. The world doesn't believe that. The world doesn't care about that. But I'm not talking to the world. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to you. You are the church. You are the people of God. You are to know these truths and these facts. And you are to have hope in them. You are to trust in them and you are not to let the world sway you and sin sway you and popular sentiment and political correctness sway you no matter how much pressure it puts upon you to live your life, to earn a living or to do anything else. Because at the end of the day, we're not going to answer to a man, we're not going to answer to a politician, we're not going to answer to some bishop or some pastor or some pope, we're going to answer to God himself. We will stand in the presence of God and we will answer to God. And we, above all people, 
should be a people who take that seriously and realize the seriousness and the magnitude of what's happening. Well, this is what this book of Hebrews is all about because these believers were in a very similar situation being tempted to go off the reservation, so to speak, to depart from the path and to go away that God says is not the way. You see, things don't really change. Sin is still sin. We still are tempted to do the same sinful things today as these believers were 2,000 years ago. They didn't have electricity. We do. They didn't have indoor plumbing. We do. They didn't have cars and trucks and solar panels. We do. They didn't have Bibles printed and bound like we do, filling our bookshelves and overflowing. But they had the Word of God. They had the same sin, the same temptation to not trust God, to think there's another way, a better way besides the way God has shown us. It's the same old sin that the serpent introduced to man in the garden in the very beginning. It has not changed. It was the same in the garden. It was the same for the Hebrews. It's the same for us today. And the solution is still the same. We have to look to God. We have to trust in God. We have to believe in His Word and follow His Word. So we see in these verses that God has made a promise. We have a promise from God. We have hope in Jesus Christ. And by the love of God, we are to live in obedience to His Word. Therefore, we are to live boldly in faith through love, not in uncertainty through fear. For in Christ, God has promised. We can rest in God's promise. We have sworn, He has sworn by Himself. And there is no greater that He can swear by. God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise extends to us today through faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis 22, 16 and 17. This is the promise God made to Abraham. God says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. God has fulfilled that promise in Jesus Christ. God has multiplied Abraham's descendant like the stars in the sand. God has given his people victory over his enemies, Jesus Christ conquered all of his foes, Jesus has given us the victory and we have now the power to possess the gates of our enemies. Now the enemy doesn't want you to think that. The enemy, all he has, the only power he has, the only power he's ever had is to deceive us. He has no power to, to take you captive. He has no power to steal your salvation. He has no power to, to take your life. He only has the power to deceive you as a child of God. And he has the most elaborate plans for deception and deceit 
and lying and propaganda and, and things that he distracts us with, that he wants to get our focus off of the Lord and off the truth and off the promise of God and, and get us to looking over here and believing something that's not true. That's the only power that he has. But God says, I have given you, though, child of God, power, real power, He only has the power to deceive. We have the power. We have real power to possess the gates of our enemies. The Apostle Paul reminds all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, that we are Abraham's seed and that we are heirs according to the promise if we are in Christ or if we belong to Christ. Listen to his words in Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God promises blessing with multiplication. God declares to Abraham, with blessing I will bless you and with multiplying I will multiply your descendants. In Christ, we are the recipients of his blessing and the product of his multiplication. For we are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise through faith in Jesus Christ. God promises victory over our enemies. God promises that the seed of Abraham will possess the gates of their enemies. We are Abraham's seed. We are heirs according to the promise. God has promised that we will possess the gates of our enemies, and that promise is ours today in Jesus Christ. Don't buy the lie. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. If you can't discern truth from fiction and falsehood, stop watching the news, stop reading the newspapers. Instead, open your Bible and begin to read your Bible. Read the Word of God and find real hope and real promise and real power to actually do something to change the situations we seem to be so distressed about today. We are in a spiritual war, and just like any warfare, there are real casualties. Our warfare is not without danger. Do you understand that? Well, I think sometimes we read the Bible and it says we're in a spiritual warfare, and we think somehow that's not like real warfare, or there's not really real danger because it's just kind of this invisible, theoretical, mystical Thing. No, it's more dangerous and it's more real than, than any warfare we can conduct here on this earth in the physical with, with lead bullets or steel bullets and, and all the firepower you can imagine. All that can do is kill your body, but the spiritual warfare we're involved in has power over your soul, whether it's going to be in the presence of the Lord for eternity, or whether it's going to be in damnation for eternity. And the enemy doesn't want you to believe that there's a real danger involved in this spiritual battle. That's why he wants you just to become indifferent about it. He doesn't really care whether you believe in God or not. He just wants you to be indifferent about your faith. He doesn't want you to really believe there's real power. He doesn't want you to believe there's a real danger. He wants you to believe that it doesn't really matter. You can believe in Jesus, and you can believe in Buddha, and you can believe in Muhammad, and you can believe in in whatever you... You can believe in that doorknob over there if you want to. You can call anything you want your higher power. It doesn't really matter. Just be sincere about it. The devil doesn't care if you love Jesus with all of your heart. As long as you are indifferent 
and ignorant to the real power and the real warfare and the real difference that God wants you to make by putting you in this earth. Now, once you figure that out, and once you realize what we have been given in Jesus Christ, you become a real threat to the enemy. And that's why he works so hard to keep you from really understanding that and knowing that. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. We're in this spiritual war. It's a real war with real danger. We can be hurt. We can suffer loss. But we cannot die and we cannot be defeated because in Christ we are victorious over our enemies. And that's exactly what Paul writes in Colossians. Our enemy is defeated. He's been disarmed. Jesus has triumphed over. All he can do is accuse you But there's no accusation left he can bring about you because you have been cleansed and washed by the precious blood of the Lamb. So your sin has been taken away. There's nothing left to accuse you of. All he can do is utter his lies and deceive you. Don't give ear to those lies. Turn your heart and turn your eyes and turn your ears to the truth and hear what God has to say. Jesus promised to build his church and he promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, they cannot. It's not a question of whether God or the devil will win. The devil is defeated. He cannot win. He cannot prevail against the church. In his promise, in God's promise, we are to advance his kingdom, to move against the gates of hell and to see his glory fill the earth. We do that by planting and watering and trusting God to bring the increase. You notice how God uses these pictures, these metaphors that remind us it's like planting and watering because they lived in an agrarian society. That's what you did. You notice when we read the scripture from Second Chronicles, they were bringing the tithe. Well, what was the tithe? They didn't have dollar bills. They didn't have checkbooks. They brought the things that was the increase. I mean, if they would have had dollar bills and checkbooks, they'd have brought that. Yeah, they had gold and silver and they brought that, but the point is, everything, every bit of increase that came to them, they knew that increase was from God and so they gave. And they gave in worship as an act of faith, as an act of trusting in God. And we see this here, this idea of planting and watering, how do we advance the kingdom? How do we overcome the forces of darkness? Well, we do it by planting and we do it by watering. And as we plant and as we water, just like a farmer, we trust God to bring the increase. That means that we do it in mostly small ways. And occasionally God lets us do it in great ways. But it's not the big things that make the difference. It's the little things that make the difference. It's our faithfulness, our consistency in planting and watering and trusting God to bring the increase. It's the little things you do or you don't do every day in your family, at your work, at your home, with the people around you that you love and God has brought into your life. 
It's the little things that we do every day that make the greatest difference. This is how God changes the world. This is how God changes us. Stop looking for the big event and start paying attention to the details and be faithful over the little things. Do you realize how much of a detail person God is? Go back and read the Old Testament. Read all of the detail and you think, why is God so big into the details? People tell me all the time, oh, you know, I hate reading those books of the Bible where it's just like genealogy after genealogy, just endless genealogies. I don't understand. What's the point? Well, the point is to help us understand that God is in the details of life. He's in the details of life so much that he's going to list endless genealogies of people that we have no clue who they are, but he knows who they are. And we don't know what they contributed, but he knows what they contributed. And what it tells me, if it doesn't tell me anything else, that there was much faithfulness over little things, small things that aren't recorded, that we don't see. We read the Bible and we think all these things happen in succession. We read big events and then there might be 20 or 50 or 100 or 200 years between those events. Well, what's happening in the 20 and 50 and 100 and 200 years, well, the little things are happening. Day in and day out, men and women and children are being faithful or not in the small things. And that is what leads to the big things. How did Israel fall into unbelief and sin? Because she didn't pay attention to the little things every day. Not just at the temple, not just at the Capitol building, but in the homes. Parents, what are you doing every day with your children? How are you teaching your children? How are you raising your children? How are you paying attention to the details every day so that your child is raised up and equipped to trust God and not fall for the lies and the propaganda of this world? In Christ, we patiently endure I'm sure you have noticed by now that God does not move on our timetable or based on our wishes and our desire or even our own perceived need. The writer of Hebrews points us to Abraham as our example of one who patiently endured as he waited to obtain the promise. Abraham looked ahead to the cross of Christ. He could only see by faith what we know is already finished today. Today, we look back in faith to the finished work of the cross, knowing that Christ is risen and ascended to the Father. And by faith, we look ahead to the time when Christ will return to finally put His last enemy, death, under His feet once and for all. Because Christ's promise is certain. Because God's promise is certain in Christ. Because of that, we can patiently endure. And we can give thanks in all things, for we have obtained the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. The promise is not what we're looking to get one day. The promise is what we have right now in Jesus Christ. By faith, God is producing in us that which cannot disappoint. Because of His love that He has poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us by His grace. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 5. 
verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of glory, in the, of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Listen, knowing that tribulation produces you might not think of tribulation producing, but the Bible says tribulation produces something in us. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What is hope? Who is our hope? We read this in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 says Jesus Christ is our hope. We use that word hope very loosely. I'm hoping for this. I'm hoping for that. I hope this happens. I hope that happens. Now, the Bible is very clear that our hope is Jesus Christ. And so when we read a scripture like Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and we read this verse 5, and it says, now hope does not disappoint, our first instinct is to say, oh boy, that, I know that's not true. I've been disappointed a lot of times. God has disappointed me many times. That's not the point. The point is, by God's grace, we can patiently endure in hope that cannot disappoint. That hope is Christ. That does not mean that we cannot be disappointed. We've all been disappointed, greatly disappointed, sorely disappointed. The point of this scripture is not that we can ever experience disappointment. The point of this scripture is to point us to a hope that cannot disappoint, and that hope is Christ. It means that the hope we have in Christ cannot fail and ultimately it cannot disappoint in the promise of God. We patiently endure knowing that God's promise cannot fail. Knowing that God is ever producing His purpose in us by His love that He has poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In Christ we have strong consolation. We not only have strong consolation in Christ, but Christ is our strong consolation. Just like we have hope in Christ because Christ is our hope, we have strong consolation in Christ because Christ is our strong consolation. He's our strong comfort, our strong encouragement. That's what consolation means, comfort and encouragement. The root word for consolation is the same word we get for comforter. The Holy Spirit is called our comforter. Jesus is called the consolation of Israel. Christ is not a consolation prize. Please don't think that, because He's not. He is the consolation, and He is the greatest prize. He is the greatest consolation that we have. He is the greatest comfort, the greatest encouragement, and the greatest promise that we could possibly possess. Christ is the promise for which we patiently endure. Christ has come. Well, then what are we waiting for? Listen, the Bible says that God is working in us to conform us to the very image of Jesus. 
That means every second that ticks away, the Spirit of God working inside of you is conforming you in ways you can't see, in ways you can't perceive. He's working in ways you don't even know, but He's working. He never ceases to work, conforming you to the image of the Son. Christ is the promise. He is our Savior, our strong consolation, given to us by God's grace for God's glory. In Christ, we have hope. This is the point of what we're talking about, that we would be a people filled with hope, not hopeless. As we patiently endure, we have a present hope, but we also have an ultimate hope. We very oftentimes, as believers, only look to an ultimate hope. We sing songs like, I'll fly away. I can't wait till I fly away one day. I can't wait till I leave this weary old earth and, and get to glory. And then I can really start living. No, you better start living right now because God's put you on this earth to live. He's put you on this earth to make a difference. He did not put you on this earth so that you could just look to and long for heaven. He put you on this earth because there is work to do. There's a kingdom to advance there is darkness to dispel. There are real enemies that need to be defeated, just like the children of Israel. God gave them the promised land. But you notice what he did not do? He didn't kick all the enemies out. He said, there's the land. Go take it. And what did the people do? They went into the land and they said, oh my gosh, they're too big. They're too strong. We can't do this. Let's go back to Egypt. I'd rather be a slave than go into the land of promise and die at the hands of these giants. That's why that generation died in the wilderness. But God has done the same thing with us. He's put us in the land and he said, now go take it. And we say, but God, there's, there's real enemies out there. They're calling me names, don't you hear? I mean, they're not even cutting our heads off yet. They're not even putting us in jail yet. They haven't even come in and told me to quit preaching this, this nonsense. They're just calling us names. They block us on Facebook. They defriend us. They don't call us anymore. They write nasty things on Twitter about us. And, and we can't take it. It's too much for us. We've got a problem. Do you realize we have a problem? You know how God's going to solve that problem? If we don't toughen up, you know what's going to happen? God's going to put us in tougher situations that will require us to become tougher. That's just the fact. How do we know that? Because that's what he's done throughout history with his people. Because we're not the first generation of his people that have been lazy and fearful and distracted and indifferent. And God loves us too much to leave us in that condition. So he says, if you will not gird up your own loins and begin to run this race in a worthy manner, then I'll put you in situations that will leave you no choice. And you will have to gird up your loins and begin to run. You might be running for your life, but you're going to run. And here's, here's the thing, church. We don't, have, we don't have to wait for that. 
We can choose to be obedient. We can go back to his word like the little story. The point of the book is to point us back to his word. The point of everything is that we go back to his word and we let his word begin to define our lives. We have hope. In Christ, we have hope as an anchor of the soul. Christ is our hope. He's our anchor. He is our immovable rock that we're anchored in. If you've ever been anchored in rough seas, I grew up on the coast, so if you go, if you go out in the boat, my cousin always said this, I come down here from Houston and I come to the coast and I stand on the bank and I throw out as far as I can to try to get my bait as far out there in the ocean as I can. But then when I go with you guys in the boat, we get in the boat and we pull up to the shore and we're throwing right there at the shore. Well, if you've ever fished in the surf, I mean like the Gulf surf, for trout, they, they live between the sandbars. But you get out there and you anchor, and if that, if, that rough, if that surf gets too rough and you're anchored in that surf, your boat can get swamped. So your anchor doesn't give, and the wave comes, and it pulls your boat down, and your boat gets swamped, and next thing you know, your boat is sunk in the Gulf of Mexico. It's not a good thing to have happen. Kevin, I know you don't know anything about that. Life can sometimes be that way. When we talk about Jesus being our anchor, and we're anchored in Him, or we're trusting in Him, but that doesn't mean storms don't come. That doesn't mean waves don't come. That doesn't mean the wind doesn't rise up. We're anchored like we're supposed to be, but the wind comes and stirs up stormy seas, and the next thing you know, we're in danger of sinking. And in those times, we need to remember the one who is in the boat with us. Remember when the disciples were in fear of drowning? Jesus was with them, asleep in the back of the boat. And he says, why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? We need to remember that Jesus is with us. And he not only is with us, but he is the one that has power over the wind and the waves. You may feel like your boat is fixing to swamp and you're fixing to sink. And that's when we need to look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, because he has power over the wind and the waves. And if the worst happens and you actually sink, there's even an account in the Bible that by faith Peter was able to walk on the water as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. And what is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. It may look like everything is sinking around us. It may look like the storm is overwhelming us. We need to stop looking at the storm, stop looking at the wind, stop looking at the waves. We need to look to Jesus. Don't trust in your boat. It might sink. Trust in Jesus. He can never sink. And He will never let us down. As we learn from the first question in the New City Catechism, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer is this, that we are not our own but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The short answer is this. The only hope we have is Jesus Christ. He alone is our hope. Therefore, we can rest assured that in Christ we are never without hope. And that hope we have in Christ is an anchor of the soul, 
Our soul anchored in Christ keeps us from drifting upon the rocks that wait to wreck our faith in our life. In life, we're not to focus on and sail toward the rocks. We're to focus on Christ and to sail beyond the rocks. Man has no hope outside of Jesus Christ, nor is there salvation in any other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. In Christ and in Christ alone do we have hope. Look to Christ. Find your hope in Christ. The writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us that Jesus is our forerunner. He has run before us. He has prepared a way for us. And the point is here that Jesus did not just go into the presence behind the veil so that we could have our sins forgiven. Yes, He did that. But He also went into the presence behind the veil and made a way for us to come with Him, to go with Him. Listen to His words recorded for us in John chapter 14, verses 1-4. through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Jesus is not talking about some event that has not happened yet. We think Jesus is up in heaven building little mansions for us. That's, that's not what this is talking about. This never was meant for us to believe that Jesus is up in heaven building my mansion and I'm, I'm waiting for him to come back and take me where he is. That's not what this scripture is about. The picture in Hebrews is picturing What's happening on the Day of Atonement when the high priest takes the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of the nation and he goes behind the veil and he sprinkles the blood. Does he come back or does he not? Was he clean? Was the high priest worthy to come into the presence of God? Well, when he comes back out from behind the veil, we know that God accepted the blood of the sacrifice and we know that the sins of the nation have been forgiven. If the priest does not come back outside from behind the veil, it means when he walked into the presence of God, God struck him dead because he was not worthy to come into the presence of God. This is the picture of John 14. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go, you will be there also. I'm going to prepare a place that you can be with me. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. This is why Jesus is not like the earthly high priest. He's the forerunner. He didn't just go atone for our sins. He made a way for us to come and be where he is. Jesus has not gone away to prepare a place that we're waiting to inhabit one day. Jesus went before us that we may be where he is. He went to the cross he died, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father, and he has opened a new and a living way for us by his blood to enter the very presence behind the veil. But here's the good news, there's not even a veil anymore. Because when Jesus died, when Jesus died on that cross, when he said it is finished, at that very moment the Bible tells us the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. Jesus is our forerunner. He entered into the presence so that we too could enter the presence of the Father. He is the way to the Father. There is no other. That's why Jesus said, I am the 
way. Christ has entered into the presence behind the veil. Now in Him we too enter in. In Christ there is no longer a veil. It's taken away now. The way to the Father is opened wide. And in Christ we may come boldly before the throne of grace. That's good news, church. We can come boldly to the very throne of grace. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can patiently endure with assurance and give thanks. In Christ, we have strong consolation, strong comfort, and strong encouragement. In Christ, we have hope that anchors our soul sure and steadfast against all that would attempt to move us. In Christ, we have a forerunner and a great high priest who has gone before us and has prepared the way for us, removing the veil so that we too may enter the presence. In Christ, we have a royal We are royal priesthood. We are kings and priests destined to rule, not in heaven, but on this earth with our God. A lot of Christians don't even realize that. They think they're going to spend eternity somewhere floating around in the clouds. And the Bible says we're going to spend eternity on this earth ruling and reigning with Him. In Christ, we are commanded to go and to make disciples of every nation. In short, we are commanded to conquer the world For the glory of Christ. In Christ we are a warrior priesthood. Who are placed here in this world. To see his kingdom come. His will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. In Christ we are called. To contend for the faith. Not surrender it. In Christ we are called to stand. Not to fall. In Christ we are engaged in a spiritual war. Not a culture war. War. Don't buy that lie. This is not about a culture war. This is a spiritual war. And if we win the spiritual war, we win the culture. And we will win the war because Christ has already gained us the victory. In Christ, we are called to speak the truth in love, not compromise the truth in the name of love. In Christ, we are brought into the presence beyond where the veil once was, but it is now removed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are invited in to His very table to sup with Him and to live in eternal fellowship in His presence. Every promise God has made to His people is fulfilled in Christ. And every week we come to this table to remind us of those promises and to remind us that they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that if it is not for Christ, there is no hope, there is no promise. We have a hope. We have the greatest hope that anyone could ever have. We have Christ. He is the greater hope. Amen? Guys, come up. We're going to get ready to come to the table. You don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church to come to this table. But a member of His body it doesn't matter where you worship it's about who you worship. And if you worship the Lord Jesus Christ the only Lord the only Savior if you know that He is your hope your only hope you are welcome to come to this table to eat His bread and to drink His cup and to declare His death and His life. Amen? Come to the table.
I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to give you your charge. I charge you to remember and to be reminded that we are the body of Christ, the people of God, the church of the firstborn, the redeemed of the Lord, and we need to be willing to say so boldly and without fear. We are to remember that God has promised and He is faithful. We must also remember that man is a liar and he is unfaithful. Therefore, we are called first to fear and to obey God and not man. We must realize that we are in a spiritual war that is raging and that has real and on-the-ground consequences. There are real casualties, real death, and real destruction. Our nation is feeling those consequences And it is not going to get better if the church of the Lord Jesus does not rise up and take this warfare seriously. That applies right here in Taylor, Texas to Christ Fellowship Church. To you and to I. To you and to me. The trumpet call signaling the warriors to battle can sound like a broken record until the army assembles and engages in that battle that is at hand. We are in a fight, not for our salvation, but for the future of this nation, and most importantly, for the current and future generations. How we wage our war today will determine what kind of generation we will send into the future, and it will determine what kind of land that generation, what kind of future that generation will live in. One of peace and prosperity are one of trial and tribulation. We have the answer. His name is Jesus. He is our greatest hope. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for the hope, the greatest hope that anyone can have, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our missionaries that are on the field working to spread your gospel in lands that we are not called to, Lord, many of those lands are hostile. Literally, men and women are losing their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we remember those missionaries, those pastors. Lord, that we do not know by name, we do not know by face, but we know they are out there and we know that our giving today in small part will help them continue the work that you have commanded and commissioned them to do to make disciples, and to win the nations. Father, we ask that you would bless Christ Fellowship Church in every way, that we would be a light and a witness in this community, that we would be a light and a witness individually and personally to all those that you bring us in contact with. Father, thank you for this food and our fellowship today. Let it be strength to our bodies, to our soul, and to our spirit. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.